Hi, my name is Tracy Carpenter and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, welcome. We are glad that you tuned in. We believe that the church is a family and not just an event, and so we would love to connect with you. Uh, there are a few ways that you can do that. The first being um, through our website, which is www.restoredtemecula.church, um, and then click on contact. We also have a mobile app that you can get in the Apple or the Android app stores, and through that app you can see past uh, messages, upcoming events, and other ways for us to connect. Um, so with all that said, we hope you enjoy the message. It is always a pleasure to be together. Okay, if we haven't met yet, my name is Tom. I, uh, I have the privilege of providing leadership to the church as the lead pastor on eldership with my wife Ebony and Herrick and Heather Berga. If we haven't met yet, thanks, Kev. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you, hear your story. Well done, dude. Well done. Uh, really quickly, just want to honor the, the tech team that comes here early to set things up and like... The best part is like, I'm going to put you on blast, Kev. The best part is like, Kevin Lachlan is the most like kind, gentle, humble man. Doesn't want any credit, just like respond to the love of God in his life by serving. And I just want to honor you, dude. Stuff starts feeding back and you're working on it. Just love you. Thank, thank, so thankful for you. None of us could really, we would all be lacking without your contribution in helping us, dude. So we love you, honor you. Sam, Jenna, you guys too. <laughs> Love you guys. Uh, but this morning, we are going to be jumping back into this series that we've entitled The King and His Kingdom, where we are exploring Matthew's gospel. Okay, so the, the, the apostle Matthew, the, the disciple, one of Jesus' 12, wrote down all these words that we see in the book of Matthew. It's the eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry, his life. And we've been going through this gospel account through the lenses of like God and his kingdom, uh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's why I've called it the king and his kingdom. And so the way we've kind of set this up every week is, I don't know, kind of juxtaposition what the Bible has to say about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and what, I don't know what, I think Western Christianity has kind of associated the kingdom of heaven as being something like out there something that you go to when you die, that kind of idea. And we've been using, I love this D.A. Carson quote. We say it every single Sunday that we've been going through this series, but the kingdom of God, he says, is more a, re a reign than a realm. It's more a power than it is a place. And if you spend any time investigating the kingdom of God in the New Testament, the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God is a reality that we can experience partly in the present and fully in the future. Now, when I say fully in the future, I'm talking about, I'm referencing Jesus's second coming, okay? Him coming to, to ultimately like eliminate sin and evil once and for all. That's the, the fully, the full experience of God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, his way. But we get to experience it partly here and now. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's not this distant thing some far off thing that we go to when we die. Obviously, it, it, it takes place that we experience it after we perish, but like there's a reality to it here and now, partly in the present. 
Now, Herrick uh, already alluded to it, but today we're going to talk about, we're going to kind of begin to jump into what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon of all time, spoken by God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And guess what this sermon is all about? Let me hear you. The kingdom of God, absolutely. It's all about the king and his kingdom, the kingdom of God, Okay. The, story, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it unfolds over the course of three chapters in Matthew's gospel, right? Chapters five through seven. And what we're going to do is we're going to spend 25 weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount, okay? That's roughly half of a year. And now listen, we're doing this intentionally. We're doing this with a purpose. We want to we move really slow through the Sermon on the Mount because it is so rich, Like, there's so much gold to be dug up in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's the thing. I don't don't want to be, like, overly dramatic here, but hear me. The wisdom and the truth that's contained in the Sermon on the Mount is arguably the most revolutionary teaching ever. Like, in the history of the world, all the great philosophers, all the great teachers, all the most enlightened minds throughout all of history, put them all together. And like even secular people come to the conclusion, this is the most revolutionary teaching ever. Uh, Recently, I discovered a local business called Cranut. Those of you who know, you know. Anybody know what Cranut is? Raise your hand if you know what it is, just so I can kind of get a pulse. I see you, Tiff. Okay. So here's the deal. What Cranut is, it is a craft custom donut shop here in, here, I think it's in Marietta, technically. Okay. Now listen, I, I don't consider myself a donut guy, um, but this donut has affected my life. <laughs> okay? Here's, the, here's, here's how it goes down, right? So the other day, we were going to, as a family, it was kind of getting late, and we wanted to do something fun as a family, we wanted to go grab a donut. And so, as we would typically do, we live, used to live in San Diego, they have donut bars down in San Diego, so we thought, okay, we'll hit up the donut bar. We drive to the donut bar, it's closed. Um, and we're like, bummer. So I just get on my phone really quick, and I'm like, what's the nearest donut shop, you know, before things close? And Cranut shows up, and it's just up the street, so we drive to Cranut. We show up, and what Cranut is, is it is, like I said, it's a craft custom donut shop. You walk in, and there's like the menu, and you get to pick your glaze. You get to pick your drizzle, and you get to pick your topping. And there's like a list of all these different things. And what they do is they fry the donut in front of you. So it's totally fresh. It's totally warm. It's it's spectacular, okay? Cranut has revolutionized my relationship with donuts. <laughs> okay? And like I said, I'm not really a donut guy. Here's the thing. It's revolutionized my relationship with donuts to the point where, like, no other donut really does it for me anymore. I'm like, if I'm going to do it, if I'm going to take on the calories and I'm going to do it, you know, I'm going to have a Cranut. I'm not going to mess around. Krispy Kreme, no chance. 
Hear me. In a small and a silly way, the Sermon on the Mount is like a cranut donut, okay? If you understand it. Like if you, if you, if you understand what Jesus is saying here in this sermon, and if you actually take it in, it will transform your life in ways that are way more transcendent than a silly donut, okay? Hear me though. This is where it gets real good. It will transform your life if you take it in, right? This applies to Christians too. This isn't just for the not yet Christian who doesn't understand Jesus and his ways. Like I said, the depths of the wisdom in Jesus' teaching is transformative, even for the most seasoned believer. It's revolutionary, the most revolutionary teaching in the history of the world. So, grab your Bibles. Let's roll. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be starting there in Matthew chapter 5. And for those of you guys that don't have a physical Bible with you, the team's going to throw the words up on the screen. I'm in the Christian Standard Bible translation, so if you have a different translation, it might be just easier for you to check out the words on the screen. Uh, But before I dive in, I just want to pray for our time, okay? Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we desire you to point us to Jesus, enlighten us to the beauty, the power, the authority of the King of the universe. Father, I pray that you would uh, guide our time. Would you give us ears to hear you this morning, eyes to see you, and would you help me, um, would you help me to get out of your way? I really want to honor and serve these precious men and women in the room. They belong to you. And so would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you enlighten us? Would you teach us? Spirit of God, we need you. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so really quickly, I want you to keep something in mind here before I jump in. These are the first words of the greatest sermon ever preached, okay? First words are usually pretty important, okay? What Jesus is going to do here is he's going to begin his sermon with what are known as the Beatitudes, We'll get to more of this in a second, okay? But let's jump in. Verse one. When he, he there's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, sounds kind of funky here, but what rabbis would do is they would sit while they teach, okay? So after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, and here comes the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Okay, um, just to give you a heads up, I'm going to preach a little bit long this morning, but I, what I want to do is I want to do three things with my time. The first is I want to give you a really short introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, what it is, what it is not. I also want to give you a quick overview on the Beatitudes and like what is this, what's happening here. And then finally, I want to talk about what this very first Beatitude, what it teaches us about the kingdom of God. All right, let's roll. Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For starters, I want to talk about what it's not. Okay, I think it can be helpful to get an understanding of things based on what they aren't to the degree uh, that we aren't aware. So what it's not, if you're taking notes, write this down, okay? The, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a description of the requirements for entering the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again. It's not a description of the requirements for entering the kingdom of God. Uh, on my family, our last, our most recent 
Disneyland trip. Uh, has anybody been on the Rise of the Resistance, that new Star Wars ride? Yeah. So we, we had basically been on most of the rides in Disneyland, but we hadn't yet experienced the Rise of the Resistance. And those of you guys who know me, I've talked a lot of trash on Disney the last couple years, uh, but I'm not going to today. What we did was we showed up to the park and we thought, okay, what we're going to do is, since that's like our, our, chief, our chief goal is we just want to check out this ride and then cruise around and, and have fun with the kids. So we show up in the morning and we're like, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to go straight to that ride. And usually the park is kind of mellower in the morning. It's, there's not as many people. Let's go straight to that ride, kind of get it out of the way, and then we'll have the rest of the day. You see, the problem with that idea was that every other person in the entire park had the same exact idea. And so there's this like mass of people that are being shuffled to the rise of the resistance. And so we get in line. We end up waiting in line with our two kids for two hours. And then, incredibly enough, the ride closes. Thank you, Disney, right? And so we all get out of line and, you know, some people are more ticked off than others. Long story short, we make our way back to the ride. We end up going on it. It's real good, man. They did such a good job. You really do feel like immersed into the story. They do a fantastic job. But if you've ever been to Disneyland or any other amusement park and been on these kinds of experiential rides, whether it's a roller coaster or like something like Rise of the Resistance where it's more of an experience... Whenever, like at the front of the line, not the front line, like when the line starts, they usually have like a sign or two. And on those signs, they display the requirements for being able to ride on that ride. Are you tracking with me? It'll say, th- well, for starters, you have to buy a ticket to get into the parks. So that's one of the requirements. And they're ungodly expensive. Okay? You have to be a certain height. You have to be a certain weight. You have to wait in line, sometimes for hours, like in our case. But typically, at the, at the start of that line, there's that sign posted with that list of requirements to go on the ride. Hear me. That is not, I repeat, that is not what's happening here with the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a description of the requirements for entering the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Okay. I want you to keep something in mind. Who did Jesus teach this material to? We just read about it, right? He taught this material to people who had already responded to his call to follow him. In other words, to those people to whom he was already king. And they're figuring out, they're trying to feel out, but they're going, no, Jesus is Lord, man. And, and my, the rest of my life is going to be trying to figure out how to follow and obey him. I don't know if you caught it, but it says, after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach who? Then, the Sermon on the Mount is not a description of the requirements for entering the kingdom of God. Okay, the second thing it's not. It's not a description of what things will be like after you die. It's not a description of what things will be like after the Christian dies, okay? Again, Western, Western culture, especially like the secular vision of heaven or version of heaven is something you go to when you die. Revelation chapter 1 is like one of the most glorious passages in all of scripture. And it describes the reality of heaven coming to earth. It describes the the reality of, of the renewal of all things, of things, of God making things the way that he intended for them to be in the beginning, 
of, rest, of restoration. It, it describes a new heaven and a new earth. So hear me, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a description of what things will be like after the Christian dies. So if it's not those things, what is it? Here's what it is. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount is a description of what living life with God as king looks like. Hear me, while living in a world that God has not yet fully transformed. Do you get that? I'm going to say it again. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a description of what living life with God as king looks like while living in a world that God has not yet fully transformed. I enjoy fishing. Um, there's something about fishing that just kind of puts your soul, at least mine, puts my soul kind of I'm at rest and at peace. And it's also simultaneously really exciting. Anybody who hasn't experienced the excitement of actually catching in a fish doesn't, like reeling in a fish doesn't get it. They're like, this is really boring. This is really stupid. You just stand here with a pole. That's because you haven't caught a fish yet. There's this exhilarating feeling when your pole's like there and it just starts going like this. And then you start to feel that fish. It's just a really, really cool thing. And one of my favorite places to fish is in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And I remember one specific trip. I'm in like college. I went on this fishing trip with a bunch of friends and we had, it was like, it was kind of sketchy because we went up in like late October. And so the weather was really unpredictable. But I had this, I had this vivid, incredible memory of standing on one of these, uh, in one of these alpine lakes and I'm wearing waders. You guys know what waders are? Waders are like the synthetic pants that you can like not, you just walk in the water with, you know? It's like you put them over your clothes and they have boots at the end of them. And, and I'm about, man, I'm about, 20 to 25 yards off of the shore and I'm fishing at this just pristine alpine lake and it begins to snow and it was like something out of a movie it was like this moment where I was like I don't even care if I catch fish this is magical man it's so beautiful and I'm wearing these waders here's the thing about waders when you fish with waders you're essentially positioning yourself in two different domains, right? So you're, you're, you're two different domains simultaneously. Half of your body, roughly, is in the water, and the other half of your body is out of the water. Are you with me? You're literally in the in-between. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of living in the in-between of what it looks like to live with God as king while living in a world that God has not yet fully transformed. Are you with me? The theologians call it the already not yet. It's that in-between. It's like fishing with waders. In other words, it's a description of what it truly means to live as a Christian in a fallen world. It's the kingdom of heaven invading Okay, that's your introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, God in the flesh, in his infinite wisdom, he decides to begin the Sermon on the Mount with what is known as the Beatitudes. All right, quickly, I want to do a quick overview of the Beatitudes. What the Beatitudes are, is they're a list of eight kingdom blessings. Anybody desire to experience blessing in your life? Like 10% of the room, the rest of you guys, you just hate life and you don't, that's fine. It's totally cool. Hopefully by the end of this uh, preach, that will change a little bit, but 
It's a list of eight kingdom blessings. Sorry for being cheeky. Uh, But here's the thing. Here's the thing about these eight kingdom blessings. If you've ever read them, they're shocking. Each of them starts with, blessed are, and then it explains. Let's just read them really quickly, okay? Uh, If you guys could throw up verses 3 through 10. I'm just going to read through this list. This is the the list of the eight Beatitudes. They say this. This is the first one that we're going to cover today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Dre's going to preach on this in a couple weeks. There's probably nobody more qualified in our entire church to preach on that verse. The next one. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Listen to this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Listen. On the surface, if you just kind of read these at first glance, these eight kingdom blessings, they don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. It should say something like, blessed are those who are really, really rich. Blessed are those who look amazing. They carry their beauty all the way till when they're like 120. But it doesn't say that. It says some things that are just kind of seemingly backwards. We're going to spend the next two months breaking down these eight Beatitudes. Why are they called Beatitudes? You know? Why are they called Beatitudes? Uh, It comes from Latin. The the Latin word is uh, beatus, I think is how you say it. It means blessed or happy, hence Beatitudes, right? Where we get that word. I don't want to spend too much time in Latin because this was actually written in Greek, if you know that. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greek word there where it says like blessed are the, and then blessed are the, that Greek word for blessed is the Greek word makarios, and here's what it means. It means someone who is to be congratulated, someone whose, pl- whose place in life is an enviable one. So it, it's not used to describe a mental state, but rather a condition of life. So think like fortunate or, or well-off. This idea of blessedness. Fortunate, well off, someone to be congratulated. So think about this for a second with me. This is bonkers. Think about what Jesus is saying with these Beatitudes. So he's basically saying, fortunate, well off are the poor in spirit. Fortunate, well off are those who mourn. Fortunate, well off are the humble, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means they lack, right? Uh, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers, happy, fortunate, well-off are those who are persecuted. Am I the only one that that seems backwards to? I'm going to date myself hard right now. Who remembers crisscross? Thank you, Dee. Crisscross was a, man, they were a young hip-hop group from the early 90s. And what they were known for is they were known for wearing their clothes backwards. I, I should have given you guys a photo because half of the room is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
but you can just picture it. Oh, thank you, Mark. Mark's going to make it happen, dude. See if you can Google it right now. <clears throat> I'll try to delay a little bit. I told you I was going to preach long. Uh, just picture, I mean, literally, pants. Uh, you can't really wear your shoes backwards, but pants backwards. Shirts backwards. Everything was backwards. I remember, uh, I remember, let me know if you get it. Laugh if you see it. Uh, I'll know. <clears throat> I remember in school, there was a handful of kids who showed up to school trying to pull it off. And it was like, you have to have a little respect. It's like, that's a, that's a gutsy move, man. When you're in like junior high and high school and you show up to school like that, because no one else, everyone else is wearing their clothes, you know, normal. <laughs> Look at this. You remember this song? Jump, jump, right? <clears throat> okay, so you can see backwards clothes. Classic, okay? Kids would show up to school dressed like this, and there'd be like maybe two or three, and every other kid's like, nah, dude. It's not going to catch on. That's backwards, right? These eight kingdom blessings, these beatitudes, they seem they appear backwards. You ever traveled to a foreign country? Have you ever been like, if you've ever been out of America into, and not like a, not like a very similar country, not like going to Canada, but like, although you could argue that they're pretty backwards right now. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in Canada. But I mean, just like kind of culture, like I'm talking a foreign country. It, man, whenever you visit a foreign country, it, things kind of feel backwards. I'm talking like the way people talk. I mean, oftentimes they're literally speaking a different language than you. The way people talk, the way they dress, the food that they eat. Dude, I was, on, I was in a cab ride in the country of Tunisia that, oh my Lord, <laughs> the way they drove. Lanes are like a theoretical idea. I thought I was, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Crazy driving, right? Things feel foreign when you're in those places. Things feel foreign to foreigners. Here's the thing, guys. I'd like to propose to you that these Beatitudes, as as backwards as they might seem, they're actually not. I'd like to propose that what culture has taught you and I to believe is actually what's backwards. And what Jesus has to say is actually truth. No matter how it may seem or it may feel. More about this in the weeks to come, okay? Now, this word makarios, the word for blessed, right? There's a lot of depth to this word. Let me read you a quote. I have a handful of quotes for you this morning. One theologian says this, makarios describes a joy which has its secret in itself, a joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, a joy which is completely independent of all chances and the changes of life. The English word happiness contains the root hap, H-A-P, which means chance. Human happiness is something which is dependent on the chances and the changes of life. Something which life may give and which life may also destroy. Christian blessedness is completely untouchable and unassailable. 
The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain, that joy which sorrow and loss and pain and grief are powerless to touch, that joy which shines through tears and which nothing in life or death can take away. End quote. What the Beatitudes are, the Beatitudes, they describe a happiness that isn't conditional. It's not dependent on circumstances. So hear me. The Beatitudes, they describe a transcendent happiness, a transcendent joy that, hear me, is only obtained in the kingdom of God. It's available to you partly in the present, fully in the future. Question for you, pastorally in love. Do you have transcendent joy? Do you have transcendent joy? Or is your happiness based on chance? I don't know about you, but the last two years have been, woo. The last two years have been really challenging. And I'll just speak for me personally. They've been really difficult for me. Personally, spiritually, in ministry, in family, in relationships, it's been super hard. I've been confronted with this kind of reality in a really big way. I don't know about you, 2020 was supposed to look very differently for me and my family. Like we had, we had plans. <laughs> we had things that were supposed to happen. Like our church was in such a healthy spot in 2020, before COVID, right? We had so many plans. Really exciting year of ministry planned. Like for our church, we were on pace to plant a new gospel community every six months. God was like doing amazing things in all of our lives. There was, I mean, deep sin and patterns of brokenness in people's lives that they were repenting of and experiencing so much freedom so much healing, so much life. It was, just, it was like a really special, beautiful season in the life of our church. And it wasn't just exciting from a ministry standpoint locally. It was exciting f- for, for me globally, man. I had multiple trips planned all over Europe, all over Africa. My family and I, we were planning some strategic rest that summer for 2020. It was gonna be, man, it was going to be this amazing year. It was going to be the, the first year, at least in our household, where both of our girls would be in school for full days. Dude, Ebony's margin was going to increase by like 10,000%. We had all these wonderful things looking forward to planning, right? And here's the thing about the school thing, like, we, we genuinely loved and appreciated the school that our girls were a part of. Their teachers and staff, had, we had a wonderful relationship with their teachers, wonderful relationship with the staff at the school. I mean, I'm talking a great relationship. We, had, we were fostering wonderful relationships with other parents in the school. We were starting to have these incredible opportunities to like, I don't know, man, build relationships with these people, like share our life with them, share the gospel with them. It was this really beautiful thing. There was like momentum happening. And as a church planner, that's huge. Then COVID. 
everything off the table, man. All of it. And I'll be straight with you, it like knocked the wind out of me. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? That, you know the feeling? Where your first feeling is like, <gasps> it's like a little bit of a panic because you're like, oh, I can't breathe. That's what it felt like in many ways. And I know I'm not the only one. 2020 and 2021 was really painful. But I'll tell you something. As painful as it was, as much as I hated it on so many levels, the past two years has taught me a lot about transcendent joy. About joy that's not dependent on circumstances. Hear me, that no matter what the circumstances are, living with God and obeying him as king in the midst of unwanted and terrible circumstances actually results in a joy that transcends all of it. That's what the Beatitudes are describing here, friends. Let me read you another quote. Uh, Theologian William Barclay, love William Barclay, says this quote, the world can win its joys and the world can equally lose its joys. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, even a change in the weather can take away the fickle joy the world can give. But the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from walking forever in the company and in the presence of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the Beatitudes is that they are not wistful glimpses of some future beauty. They are not even golden promises of some distant glory. Listen to this. They are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in the world can ever take away. The Beatitudes are not pious hopes of what shall be. They are not glowing but vague prophecies of some future bliss. Here it is. They are congratulations on what is. The blessedness which belongs to Christians is not a blessedness which is postponed to some future world of glory. It is a blessedness which exists here and now. It is not something into which Christians will enter. It is something into which they have entered. That is fire. Friends, the Beatitudes describe a transcendent happiness that is only obtained within the kingdom of God and that is available to every Christian right now. You with me? All right, finally, my last thing what this first beatitude teaches us about the kingdom of God. Let's look at it one more time. Verse three, if you guys have it. This is the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, when you hear the word poor, what comes to your mind? Talk to me, I want to engage with you. When you hear the word poor, what comes to your mind? There's no wrong answers. Lack of money, what else? Lack? Anything else? Homeless, totally. Yep, homeless. Broken. Hopeless. Is that what you said, Paul? <laughs> Sorry, man. 
All of those are, all of those are, are more than adequate answers. In similar fashion, let's talk about what the poor in spirit does not mean, okay? The poor in spirit, as we read in this beatitude, poor in spirit does not mean material poverty. Another quote for you. Quote, we must be careful not to think that this beatitude calls actual material poverty a good thing. Poverty is not a good thing. Jesus would never have called blessed a state where people live in slums and do not have enough to eat and where health deteriorates because conditions are, are all against it. it. I love this. It is the aim of the Christian gospel to remove that kind of poverty, end quote. So hear me. Material poverty is not a good thing. Jesus is not saying blessed are those who are materially poor. So then, what is he saying? Um, the last 10 years or so, I've had the privilege of, of being on most of the continents in the world. Um, all over Europe. So London, Paris, Dublin, Belfast, Rome, Edinburgh, Zurich, Istanbul, Middle East, Dubai, Tel Aviv, Palestine, Israel, Africa, North Africa, South Africa, Durban, Cape Town, Johannesburg, Tunis. I've been all over the United States, most of the major cities. And I don't say that to like brag. That's not what I'm doing here at all. I share that because I've had my, my eyes enlightened to how different other parts of the world are. I mean, even in our own country, very, very different places very, very different cultures, okay? Dozens of languages. I've been in cities where I'm like, I can't talk to anyone unless they, don't, unless they know English. I know a little bit of Spanish, poquito. That's it. Dozens of languages, totally different customs. They're foreign, kind of like what we talked about earlier, right? But here's the thing. When traveling, I've noticed something. I've noticed that all of these different places, they have something in common. What all of these places have in common is that you will find beggars on the street at every single nation in the world. And sure, like there are like the con man beggars, you know, like the dude who has the sign, asks you for money and then gets in his bends and drives away, that guy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who literally have nothing but the clothes on their back. Like the people that if they don't beg, they don't eat. Uh, my buddy, Vinny. Uh, you guys should talk to Vinny about Hito Pack. Uh, Vinny started this company called Hito Pack where he, the desire really is, yep, rep for your pop. Uh, the desire is to care for, in a very practical way, these kinds of people. Um, Vinny's going to preach next Sunday. We're super excited about it. You guys have, like, the next two Sundays. It's kind of like Vinny's preacher going to love, Dre's preacher going to love. It's going to be fantastic. But these people that are like, if, if they don't beg, they don't eat. 
I've seen these people all over the world. And here's the thing. These people, they're 100% dependent on the generosity of others to meet their daily practical needs. They're beggars. And it's not for show. It's real. They completely lack any material wealth whatsoever. Here's the thing, friends. Material wealth is different than spiritual wealth. I'm going to say it again because we tend to think almost exclusively in the material realm and not the spiritual. Material wealth is different than spiritual wealth. To be spiritually wealthy is to be what the Bible calls righteous. Do you know what it means to be righteous? Righteous means like rightness. So it means to be in the right, like exclusively, to to lack any wrongness. Are you with me? Yeah? Great. I'm... I'm seeing people whose stomachs are like, I just need lunch. So bear with me, okay? To be righteous means to lack any wrongness, okay? So hear me, to be spiritually wealthy is to be without any wrongness. It's to be righteous. On the flip side, to be spiritually poor, the poor in spirit, track with me, to be spiritually poor is to lack righteousness, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned, underline all, (laughs) for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, in other words, everyone has sinned. If you look around the room, every single one of us has sinned. If you look around the planet, everyone has sinned. Everyone has chosen wrongness. Everyone lacks righteousness. If you don't believe me, just examine your thoughts for the last 30 minutes. Everyone lacks righteousness. Hear me. Stay with me. That's what it means to be spiritually poor. It's it's when your spiritual bank account is empty and your currency is righteousness. And just like the beggar on the street... You got nothing. And sure, there are people that that think, you know, like, well, no, man, I I do good things. Who are you to tell me? Who are you to tell me that I'm not a good person, goofy pastor, with your collared shirt that you didn't iron before you left the house? Yeah, no, I do good things. I have merit. Hear me. Attempting to produce righteousness from your unrighteous self. Like, do you know what that's called? (laughs) It's called self-righteousness. Which is what the Bible calls pride. Which is the root of all sin. You see, it's like an oxymoron. The unrighteous person suddenly producing righteousness is like an apple tree producing oranges. The truth, the truth is, all of us have chosen wrongness. All of us lack righteousness. All of us 
are spiritual beggars and without the generosity of someone wealthy, we don't stand a chance. Because the wages of sin is death. Hear me, friends. The poor in spirit are those who are aware of their unrighteousness. They're aware of their wrongness. They're aware of their sin. And it's these people that Jesus say are transcendently happy. These people who Jesus says are blessed. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is for them. It's been said that Christian evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I tried to figure out who who said that first. I couldn't figure it out. People say Billy Graham. People say, either way, I think it's a beautiful picture. All people have one thing in common, Christians and non-Christians. We're all beggars, man. We're all spiritually poor. There are two types of people in the world. There are those that are aware, they're desperate. They're beggars. They know how spiritually poor they are. They know their bank account lacks any righteousness. So they're desperate or there are those in denial. But hear me, friends. The kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. It's for those that lack righteousness. It's for those who are fully dependent on the grace and the generosity of God. I'll call the band up. I'll close with this. Throw up that beatitude one more time for me, Sammy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I wish I had another hour. There's so much here. Like, this tells us so much about God's kingdom. It tells us so much about the kingdom of heaven. But it tells us even more about the king. So much about the kingdom of God, but it tells us so much about the king. It tells us about his heart. Listen to me. It tells us about his heart. He's compassionate to those who have chosen wrongness. Let that sink in. Let that minister to you this morning. The king is compassionate to those that have chosen wrongness. He's generous to those that lack righteousness. And above all, he's incredibly gracious to the sinner, to the spiritually poor, to the poor in spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, spiritually wealthy, right? Perfectly righteous. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's called the great exchange. Jesus The king takes the wrath for your wrongness. You get the reward for his righteousness. Let your mind stew on that one for a little bit. 
that, my friends, results in a happiness that transcends circumstances. You can't touch that. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, listen to this, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. The righteous for the unrighteous, the spiritually wealthy for the spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is for them. Friends, here comes the good news, baby. In your worst moment, like you at your absolute worst, this means God is for you in those moments. It's bonkers. You at your worst, he's for you, so much so that he would willingly give his life in your place. God of the universe would put on flesh to live the perfect life in your place that you, you, you didn't, <laughs> you haven't, that you never could, and to die the death that you deserve for the ways that you sin against him and sin against others. The spiritually rich, the spiritually wealthy became poor, absorbing the, the, the punishment for your spiritual poverty so that you could become rich in righteousness. Do you see it? Guys, do you you understand what Christianity is? Christianity is the possession of a transcendent joy. It's the possession of a transcendent happiness. It's a joy that's found in the one thing that can never be lost, the one thing that can never die, the one thing that can never be taken away. And that is God's love for the spiritually poor like me and like you. Will you stand with me if you're able? Question for you. It only works if you're brutally honest. I'm not going to ask you to speak it into a microphone. Just be honest with yourself for just a moment. You and the Lord, okay? Where does your happiness come from? Where does your happiness come from? Is it fickle? Does it shift and move and change? Here's how you know. That's not fair. Here's how I know in my life. How I treat people. How I think about people. Especially people that irritate me. Especially people that annoy me, especially people that I disagree with. How I think about them and how I treat them, it reveals. It reveals a lot. Where does your happiness come from, friends? Some of you need to feast on Jesus this morning. (laughs) Some of you need to feast on Jesus this morning like a cranut donut. Let the truth and the wisdom and the love 
transform you from the inside out. I don't know if you know this, you were created. You were created to live with a transcendent joy no matter what. It's only possible in the kingdom of God. That's why we're spending so much time exploring this. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we wait on you. We invite you to speak to us now. God, you're you're making people aware of their sin right now. Not in a condemning way, but in the same way that a rescuer frees someone from bondage. In the same way a deliverer breaks chains. Praise you for it, Jesus. You're wonderful. I pray. Father, I pray that you would give all of us more and more faith, that's trust in the grace that's available to us, that who you are as the compassionate one, as the faithful forgiver, as the redeemer, as the rich one who is more than willing to lay aside your riches and take on our poverty. Help us to trust who you are Help us to trust this beautiful kingdom blessing that blessed are the poor in spirit because your kingdom is for us. I pray just against self-righteousness and the deceptive lie that it is. Puffs us up, causes us to look down on others. And honestly, it causes us to miss out on your kingdom. Let us be people who look to you and you alone for the righteousness that we need, that you've so graciously provided for us in our place, Jesus. You became poor so that we might become rich. Give us faith to trust that. We love you, Jesus. There's nobody like you. Nobody even comes close to you. Father, you're infinitely wise. Spirit, you're infinitely powerful. We praise you. We love you. We adore you. And we pray these things in your name. Change us. Amen. All right, friends, for the next 20 minutes, this is the main event. This is the the pinnacle, this is the most important time of our gathering right now, okay? Handful of people have stepped out to the restroom, that's fine, but you guys, I, I want you to know that this is the main portion of our event, of our, of, our, of our gathering. It's a time when we respond to who God is and what he's done. We, 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 we offer him praise, we offer him prayer, we look to him, we, 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 we turn our face to the one who turned his face to us in our most impoverished state. Band's going to lead us. I want to encourage you, press into him, enjoy him because of who he is, because of what he's done, and for all the beautiful benefits that you have being a part of his kingdom. Okay? Love you guys very much. Enjoy him, and then Herrick will be up in just a bit to close us. Come on up, Ed. Ed's going to pray for us. She had an impression of something that God might be doing amongst us. He's going to pray it over us. God meeting us where we're at and 
just poor in spirit and just that despair and brokenness and um, even a false impression that we're prisoners to our sin. Just wanting to pray, I think, just over specifically. I'm not going to call anybody up or have you come to me for prayer because I just feel this impression and just the character of God of Jesus is to meet you where you're at spiritually. So just praying over those um, right now. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your words on the cross that said it is finished. May we not forget what that means. And I just pray where maybe the head and heart haven't connected the beauty of those three simple words and the beauty of that period at the end. I just want to pray um, for an acknowledgement and spirit-led awareness that when you said it is finished, you placed a period there. You meant it. There's nothing we can do to add to our salvation, to earn it, to, um, to pay it. Like Jesus, you paid it in full. And the beauty of tetelestai, the written Greek uh, word of it is finished, the beauty of that is just even how some historians, some people, they remember that as a stamp that was placed on a prisoner's debt. When their, when their debt was paid in full, it was stamped to tell us die. It's done. And Jesus, that's what you have done for us. And I just want to lift up and pray, Jesus, that you would remind those who are still sitting in the prison cell. The darkness that they feel is real. You know, you know what that's like. And you don't shame them. You don't shake your head that's not who you care that's not who you are lord but instead you meet us where we're at and jesus i just pray for those uh, that are stuck that are stuck in their faith those that have forgotten those that um can't even see the blindness of the reality of, of all that you've done for them that they have freedom i pray jesus holy spirit that you would meet them that you would awaken them, that you would show them that you, that you are the light in those dark places. That darkness isn't even darkness to you. You are the light and you meet us and you gently, gently remind us who you are and you, you show us out, you show us the freedom. So I just pray that for those that are struggling, that are stuck, that you would hold their hand and that you would lead their way back into the freedom that you have, that your blood has paid for fully. It is done. It's finished. It can be received here and now. And I just pray that you would move powerfully and that um, when there's some temptations and lies to come at them, to shove them back into that place, no, you say no. It is done. So Lord, may we all receive that. We love you so much. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ab. You guys can have a seat. I'm going to close this out quickly. Man. Uh, you can have transcendent joy in any situation because the king is compassionate. Jesus. Remember, Jesus is king. 
And the word that I had written down was actually stuck, which um, I don't know if I was looking at my notes or what was going on there, but nine times out of 10, it's a little Stussy S that I'm, you know, doodling. This time it's the word, I'm just kidding. It's ticks of you got that joke. But the word stuck is what was, was actually on there. So if you feel like you're stuck, honestly, in any, in any way, it might be stuck in sin, maybe because of shame or guilt, you just kind of feel stuck in life. And the king is compassionate to you. He has compassion on broken people, just like you and me. He became poor so that we might become rich, spiritually speaking. It's a beautiful thing. So man, if any of that resonated with you, if maybe all you needed was just ept prayer, and the Lord ministered to you right where you were, wonderful. We've got time. We've got 10 minutes. There's people in the back who would love to pray. The prayer ministers have little lanyards. If you want, guys want to raise your hands in the back, there's three, four. You can actually go get prayer right now if you'd like to. We've got 10 minutes before you got to pick up your kids. So I want to encourage you to use this time, your time to respond. Maybe you need to do some business with Jesus right at your seat. Or maybe you need to talk to somebody in the room about something or ask for prayer. So I want to encourage you, use this time wisely. Enjoy it. And I think that's it. I don't think I have any other housekeeping notes. But we love you. Next week, Vinny will be up. Let's get excited about that. Hope to see you guys then. Pick up your kids by noon. Ten minutes. Enjoy.